Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You are listening to The Big Cruise Podcast. Welcome to episode 22 of The Big Cruise Podcast. My name is Baz and I'm your host. And in today's show, we'll shortly be catching up with Chris Frame for our usual maritime history and cruise news. But he's also going to be answering a listener question from Steve in Queensland. Uh, later, we join uh, Peter from Clear to learn about five ports where you can just literally jump off a ship Take a map and discover on foot. That's a, a great walkable city. Uh, his top five coming up mid-show. And then later on, we have uh, Brogan, who's going to be talking about his uh, most recent cruise, which was actually on board uh, a seaborne vessel uh, sailing around the Mediterranean in late 2019. Now, if you want to be part of the show, we uh, always welcome you to uh, get in touch, and you can do so via the website, thebigcruisepodcast.com. Click on Join the Show and either send us your uh, listener question or, or send us the details of the ships that you would uh, like to review and uh, talk about uh, your cruise experience. Um, but without further ado, let's jump straight into this week's show. <laughs> And once again, it's time to welcome our good friend, maritime historian, Chris Frame, back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, Barry. Another week? Another week. More news, more history. And uh, this time, we're actually going to start off with a listener question, if that's all right. Sure. Go ahead. Um, so Simon in Queensland sent a little message through via the website. And if anybody does have any questions, head to thebigcruisepodcast.com and uh, click on Join the Show. And that's where you can send your questions through to uh, myself, Chris, or Pete. Um, and this one really uh, heads in your direction, Chris, because it's particularly about Cunard. And Simon is asking is, what prompted the, the change in names from the end of the ships being IA to IC to being obviously the, the queens that we know today? Oh, that's a great question. And yeah, absolutely down exactly what um, I sort of talk about in some of my talks as well, uh, Barry. Um, so it's for Simon, is it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So so Simon, the, the ships for the Cunard fleet were historically, the majority of them were named with names ending in IA. Most of them ended in ancient 
were named after ancient Roman provinces. Um, now, we've spoken about the first ever Cunard ship, which is a ship that was called Unicorn. So obviously that, that didn't ca- carry on that tradition mm-hmm. from the very, very start. But the first ship that Cunard built was Britannia. And then all of the subsequent ships after that had that IA um, ending. Now, this was actually done uh, for a number of reasons, but the primary primary reason was for marketing purposes. Uh, it was quite difficult to let passengers know which ships were sailing for which shipping lines back in the era where you had to rely on word of mouth or um, sort of newspaper sailing schedules to book your passage. So having all the Cunard ships with the names that had a similar ending helped them to uh, build that awareness of the Cunard fleet, which ships were in the Cunard fleet. Now, White Star Line, they were doing the same thing, but their ships were ending in IC. So you had many of the White Star Line ships that were named after words from Greek or names from Greek mythology, for example, um, and they often had IC endings at the end of their names. Um, in the 1930s, uh, they were, well, actually in the 1920s when they were starting to build the Queen Mary, they hadn't named the ship yet. She was only known by her build number uh, and uh, through into the early 1930s. And because of the Great Depression, the Cunard Line was unable to complete Queen Mary, they ran out of funds. So uh, this unnamed ship was left at the shipyard in uh, Scotland and the company was in uh, sort of dire straits. So they ended up approaching the British government who provided them with funding to complete the ship. But the proviso was that Cunard and White Star, which was also struggling at the time, was to merge. And the merger of the two companies meant that these two rivals that had these very different naming conventions were now forming um, one single company. Now, Cunard did have the majority shareholding in that new company, um, and White Star Line was a smaller smaller player within it. But uh, one of the reasons why they were very keen with the new ship to name it something that was completely different from the previous names was because of um, this merger of the two companies. Right. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, the name Queen um, came up with this because um, Queen Victoria was actually... Um, considered as a name for the new ship. Uh, and Victoria ends in IA, so that was Cunard, I suppose, from their perspective, being the bigger of the two <laughs> shareholders. They were um, kind of throwing their weight around a little bit. But um, I think we've, we might have shared this story once before, but there's this, there's this fantastic little story about the naming of the Queen Mary um, where the chairman of the Cunard line needed to seek permission from uh, Buckingham Palace and from King George V to name the ship after uh, Queen Victoria. So at that meeting uh, with the king, the audience with the king, he said, uh, we'd like to name our newest ship after uh, Britain's greatest queen. And the king replied, my wife will be delighted. Um, and the new <laughs> ship became Queen Mary. So <laughs> um, so she was named as Queen Mary. The second one in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the duo was named Queen Elizabeth. But then they went back to naming their ships with IA. Cunard was the bigger of the, of the two. And they used the IA names right the way up until um, QE2, uh, which of course was Queen. And then after QE2 came into service, they completely separated from that modern day, trying to get sort of the, the new trendy um, image. And they started calling their ships things like Cunard Countess and Cunard Princess. And they bought a whole heap of other ships with, with other names that they kept. Um, and so when Queen Mary 2 was announced uh, in, 2000, in, in, the, in 2000, she was announced as Project Queen Mary. And when she entered service in 2004, of course, she'd been named Queen Mary too. And from then on, Cunards used that queen name as their as their uh, name for their ships. But the new ship that's still 
um, under construction and it is still due to come out um, in the in the future she has yet to be named so whether or not they'll continue with that queen tradition or they'll make up a new tradition for the for the new post-covid world um, we will have to wait to see oh it's got to stay queen surely well, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, here's an interesting little um, here's an interesting little side point. Um, so, in the nineteen uh, after World War One, Cunard received uh, a ship called the Imperator as war reparations for the loss of Lus- Lusitania. Yeah. And she originally entered service. It was a big ship, um, actually one of the largest liners in the world. And she entered service for Cunard under her original name. But after a refit. They renamed her Berengaria, so it's got the IA ending. Uh, this oh, is in the cool. era before any of the ships were called Queen, but Berengaria is actually the Queen consort of Richard I. So technically, Berengaria was Cunard's first Queen. And so, you know, there is historical precedent there to use names of Queens that aren't necessarily um, the, the sort of more modern day Queens. So maybe there's plenty of. Uh, there's plenty of queens if you if you look at it that way to to choose from, but when it comes to um, queen consorts in in the current era or even queens, as as is with the case with um, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, there aren't that many names to choose from. So whether it's uh, whether it's queen or whether they use something else, I guess um, that's the big secret. They haven't told anyone yet, so um, it's exciting to wonder what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, um, that's a brilliant answer, Chris, by the way, but uh, that kind of, t- <laughs> kind of ties in. I sometimes wonder if there's anything you don't know about Cunard. Uh, we'll oh. put that challenge out there for, for somebody to try and uh, find something that you All know. All right, challenge is on. There we go. <laughs> um, but that ties in nicely with what we were going to do for uh, Maritime History this week, which um, was actually quite a big topic, and we decided to break it down a little bit and tease people over the next three weeks or so. So you want to talk about how things have evolved and changed over mm. the years from the initial um, ocean liners through to obviously modern day cruising. And this week, you're going to talk about food. Yeah, so uh, it was just interesting to think about how much things have changed. And even on the most basic cruise, to well, when cruise ships are operating, within the most sort of simple, um, you know, the, the most cheap and cheerful cruise that you can go on, how much better it really is in comparison to those early days of traveling by by ship in terms of um, accommodation, entertainment, and and the food on board. So, yeah, it's a pretty big topic to to cover in one. So we thought we'd do food this week, entertainment next week, and accommodation in the third week. And really, when you think about it, today when when you're going on a cruise, one of the things that is most likely talked about when you get back, but also expected when you go on board, is to have access to great selection of of food on board the ship. And I don't think that there's many cruise lines out there that aren't offering you know, at least as a, as a basic um, access to um, the meals and, um, uh, of course, the, the buffet, which is so very uh, popular with people to be able to select whatever they want, that sort of thing. But if you look back at the early era of um, even ocean liners, back to the 1840s and 1850s, these ships were sailing with people on board who were, I guess, by today's standards, considered to be first class. It was the most expensive way to travel across the Atlantic, and those who couldn't afford the steamships would still go on the sailing ships. But even with that um, you know, increase in fare to go on the steamships, you weren't necessarily getting uh, what you would expect from today's cruise voyages. So with the food on board, for example, this was the era before refrigeration. Uh, and so these ships didn't have fridges to bring on fresh produce on, 
in port and keep it for the 14-day crossing of the Atlantic. Or in the case of coming to um, Australia, it could be several months still by steamship. Um, and so they used to have to rely on things like preserved meats, for example, and lots of salted foods to keep them preserved. Um, the fresh produce that was brought on in port would be, be used up within the first few days of the voyage. And then, of course, um, they would have to rely on the stuff that could be kept uh, at room temperature uh, on board the ship or in ice boxes uh, for as long as the ice would last. Uh, and to get around some of these problems, they had some interesting inclusions on board the ship. So you could be walking the decks of uh, the Britannia, for example, and you might hear the sound of a cow mooing um, <laughs> or, or chickens uh, clucking because they used to carry a cow on board for milk um, and they would ca- carry chickens uh, for eggs and for meat uh, for passengers and, and the crew. And so it's just interesting to to think about that in a modern day context because um, say we'll stick with Cunard given I mentioned Britannia. So you've got Britannia there, there's a, about 100 passengers and the crew on board. The ship itself relatively small by today's standards, but um, they were using livestock to feed the, the passengers. On Queen Mary 2, for example, they, they use around about 1.5 million eggs per year. So if they were still mm-hmm. doing it the same way, you can just imagine how many chickens they'd need to be taking <laughs> on board the ship. Um, so it's a very different world. And, and it's just interesting because during this cruise pause, we had sort of time to reflect. And a lot of the, the, the content I've been putting out on, on YouTube, we get lots of comments about, you know, how standards might change and we might not be allowed to have buffets in the short term and all that sort of stuff. But then you think back to how these people were traveling around the world in the era before electric lighting and electric um, refrigeration and, uh, and that sort of thing. It was a very different experience to what we have even on the most basic cruise today. Interesting. Can't wait for next week's little uh, insights. Yeah. And if anyone's got any um, areas or things that they'd like to, to know about, any, any specific historical comparisons that uh, you'd like me to look at, just um, send, a, send an email to Barry and he'll pass it on and we can, we can maybe make a fourth one in, in week four. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, the questions that people can send through don't necessarily have to be about Cunard. Obviously, that's no, your speciality, but uh, maritime history in general is uh, mm. your, spe- your field of expertise. And as is cruise news, um, which is our next uh, topic. <laughs> and I guess the biggest uh, news this week has been the further extension of a number of different cruise lines uh, here in Australia and also in the UK. So let's kick off with Princess. Yes. So Princess, um, I think a, a brand that we all in Australia particularly, but also around the world are very fond of because they, they obviously come to various different locations. But they've extended their um, pause through to the well, early December 2020, 12th of December 2020. Um, and they also have two world cruises that were going to um, they were going to undertake next year, and those two world cruises have been cancelled, uh, which is quite similar to what a number of other lines are doing. Um, we've got Cunard, for example, which has cancelled its um, world cruises for next year. They've got Queen Elizabeth returning to service in March 2021, uh, Queen Mary II in April, and Queen Victoria in May. And you're seeing this sort of staggered return to service which i think we'll see for most of the cruise lines because to try and um get everything back up and running again is going to be a huge logistical task so i think staging it like that makes sense Uh, and for um aussies the sad news uh, that came out of uh, southampton this week was of course that queen elizabeth's 2021 australian japanese and uh, alaskan season has 
has been cancelled. So she's going to be operating out of the UK for all of mm-hmm. next year rather than coming here, which yeah. um, personally is a tragedy, of course. But um, you can understand that because she has um, she has moved all the way back to to the UK, so that makes sense. Um, P&O in Australia, sticking locally, um, they've paused um, until now the 2nd of December, so just push that, push that back until the end of this year. Uh, and the same with Carnival uh, with Australian ships. Uh, now, Carnival had extended its uh, global pause uh, earlier this year, and so Australia was, was sort of standing out um, on its own there for a while, so I think this yeah. is sort of bringing it a bit more in line with that. Um, and we've still got Celebrity... Uh, Royal Caribbean and Azamara sticking with the 31st of October. But again, like I think just monitor that and see how, how that goes in the future because these things are changing quite dramatically. And I think things like seeing the, the cruise lines moving into 2021, um, it really does probably make sense now given uh, what all of the indications are in relation to when we might start seeing viable vaccines and stuff. So I think uh, perhaps, hopefully, Barry, uh, this might be the last uh, of the big big pushes and we might start seeing things start up again next year yeah hopefully like you say great news uh down here in australia came out about uh, the potential vaccine so that gives us all uh, that little bit of uh, hope that we, yeah. we need right now And actually speaking about good news you had um mentioned to me just before we started the show that uh that carnival's got some good news as well in relation to australian voyages out of brisbane that's right, yeah. So um, literally just this morning uh, in my inbox popped the news that uh, Carnival Spirits, which is a well-loved ship down here in Australia, will be uh, home-ported in Brisbane. She will be the, uh, the the newest mega ship, I guess, for want of a better word, that will be home-ported year-round out of Brisbane um, right through to early 2023. So all the voyages now for 2022 and early 23 are now available via your uh, travel agents. Fantastic. And it's also like, you know, it's good to just sort of bring that into it as well, because all these pauses and cancellations can just sound so much like doom and gloom. But there are a lot of cruise lines, and we'll talk about a few more later, but there are a lot of other ones that are now starting to really look at their 2022-23 season. So you can actually start making some plans to what might be, you know, much more viable than trying to think about later this year. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, moving to Europe, MSC have got a trifecta of news this week. We'll start off with the, uh, the float out of Seashore. Yes, so ships these days, when they're built, they are built in big dry docks, and when they're ready to put them into the water, they don't launch them down the slipway like in days gone by, but they float them out by filling the dry dock, and the ship just gently lifts off the um, off the off the ground there and, and floats out of the dock. And then it goes over to be uh, have the rest of the interior installed, so they can free up that dock space for the next ship that needs to be built. So this has been ongoing with uh, MSC Seashore, and she's uh, floated out of the Fincantieri. Uh, yard at uh, Monfalcone in Italy uh, and uh, she is a pretty big ship uh, she's uh, just shy of 340 meters long um, and is of the largest class of ships that MSC is operating at the time and she's due to enter service in July of next year um, and right. she's one of three that are currently well there's be three in service when she enters service um, her sisters being Seaside and Seaview so they've kind of got this sea sort of theme and the naming of those ships as well <laughs> Uh, speaking of that trifecta, they're also um, offering discounted cruises for healthcare workers as a thank you to healthcare workers, uh, which I think is is nice. And it's uh, you know these people who obviously have been working in the in the in the front lines are definitely going to need some relaxation and um, recuperation once things improve. So it's nice to see the MSC is acknowledging them that way. Um, and uh, on a sadder note. 
they are having to postpone, MSC is having to postpone the resumption of sailings aboard their Magnifica, which was in, due to set sail just shortly after uh, Grandiosa, uh, which has had a successful first voyage, I, I have read. Um, it's been a yeah, successful absolutely. trip. Um, and the reason why Magnifica's voyage has been delayed is because she had an itinerary that was going to take in Greek ports. And Italy has now uh, implemented a requirement for extra health and screening and quarantine processes for people who travel from Italy into Greece and back again. So this has resulted in a sort of a softening of bookings. So they've decided to postpone that a little bit until until bookings pick up. Yeah, I think it's only a four-week pause. I think it'll be yeah. uh, back pretty quickly. They seem to be doing very well with the Grandiosa, as are Penance and other cruise lines hmm. with, their, with their restarts as well. Grandiosa was good to see as well because it was such a big ship to like up until yeah. up until her it had been you know relatively small or mid-sized ships um, but Grandiosa is, is is a large ship so to see her successfully complete the voyage without any um, outbreaks or any negative news has been very very positive for the cruise industry. Brilliant, exactly, exactly. Um, our friends at Viking have just opened up 2023 cruises at 2020 prices. Yes, and this is uh, particularly interesting because Viking has not just got the ocean cruising fleet, but they've also got a river cruising fleet. And this is their uh, new river cruise itineraries for 2023. Um, so again, they're looking a long way out now um, for opening up itineraries. And that's, again, something that we've spoken about today and also in previous podcasts as to why they're doing that. Uh, to allow people to make those forward plans. They're offering a a risk-free booking service and you can change your booking up to 24 hours before departure, which uh, again is a huge difference. Anyone who's booked a cruise in the past will know there are certain dates that you have to meet when it comes to paying deposits and paying off the balance and then also um, cancellations because the cruise lines need to know who's going to be on their ship and stuff. So they're very flexible here at Viking um, to to allow that so people can book with, uh, with some form of confidence. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody at Viking this week actually, and they were saying that realistically, twenty twenty one is so well sold that they 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 have to open up twenty three to mm. to have something to to be able to sell. So it's incredible. News. I think that's it. So many people who had plans for twenty twenty, I think maybe are pushing them into next year and going um, on these cruises for next year. So it, it it should be when things are able to to resume, it should be a a, a good opportunity for the cruise lines to rebound. Exactly. And uh, our next cruise line's even gone one step further. They've gone into 2024. Yes, I know. My goodness. And um, this is an interesting one. It's, it's Crystal, but it's with their, um, well, they've certainly been talking up their, their yacht um, experience on board Crystal Esprit. Uh, she's an 85-meter uh, luxury yacht. And in fact, she actually first entered service in the 1980s with the name of Lady Diana. So she's had a bit of an oh. interesting, a little a bit of an interesting history herself. Um, but um, the bookings have opened up until 2024, uh, and there's all sorts of different itineraries that they're offering, uh, which some of them sound really great, um, taking in places you know, from the French Riviera to Greece and Italy and Croatia. Uh, Croatia is just beautiful to cruise. Um, I had my first cruise to Croatia in 2017, and it was just remarkable. And then um, they're also going to uh, Israel and, and other Middle Eastern ports. Uh, and then even taking in areas quite far from their usual base of operations, uh, such as the Seychelles Islands from March, uh, January, sorry, through to March of 2023 and 2024. So that should be quite exciting for people who want to experience that um, crystal yacht life on board Esprit. 
Yeah, and in a similar vein to Viking, they've also got uh, uh, flexible uh, deposits, uh, extended final payments, mm. and uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, a relaxed cancellation uh, schedule as well. So everybody doing what they can to try and uh, keep people positive and encourage uh, the thought of going on a cruise sometime in the future, even if it is in 2024. And um, our friends at uh, Fred Olsen have uh, announced that uh, we kind of thought this might be on the way, mm. but with the announcement of the two new ships coming, two of the ships will be leaving the fleets. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it's one of those things. That as soon as they announced they'd purchased um, Amsterdam and Rotterdam to enter this fleet as uh, Bolette and Borealis, um, there was a lot of chatter about what would happen to Boudicca and Black Watch because they're both... Um, vintage cruise ships now they uh, have a heritage that dates back to the early 1970s and beautiful ships that have been uh, lovingly maintained and preserved by Fred Olsen um, I had a wonderful experience of going on board uh, Boudicca uh, earlier this year actually when she was um, in Australia during her world cruise and um, you know the ship's definitely a vintage ship but she's so beautifully looked after that um you know, you definitely get a, a wonderful feeling and ambience on board. But um, as ships get older, um, they don't have quite the same amenities. They're much more expensive to operate as their machinery ages and all that sort of thing. So as expected, they will be leaving the fleet. Um, as I understand it, we haven't yet been told exactly what's going to happen with them. Um, Fred Olsen um, hasn't quite uh, explained where they're going or what's going to happen to them. So maybe they'll find a life as a static hotel. Maybe they'll find a life as a a cruise ship for another cruise brand, or perhaps, sadly, we might see them join some of the other ships at the Breakers Yard, but we'll just have to watch and wait and see what's going to happen with them in the, in the long term. Do you think, that, have they got a legacy big enough that would allow them to be half-floating hotel, half-museum of some description, similar to what they did with the, the Rotterdam in, in Rotterdam? Well, the interesting thing about these two is that they were among um, a fleet of ships that were built for Royal Viking Line, which still, to this day, has been it's been defunct since... Uh, the early 1990s but still from to now there's people who who love um, re reminiscing of that royal viking experience it was a very luxurious experience um, they were very um, luxurious ships and in fact the the royal viking sun which was the last ship that was built um, and put into service by royal viking was was const constantly rated the highest rated ship afloat even after royal viking was wound up and it started operating for for Cunard actually in the 1990s so the the brand itself had um, a great following whether or not I mean it's so hard with hotel ships Barry um, any sort of static ship it's it's very difficult because you need huge amounts of money to keep it uh, maintained and to keep it operational and that's why I think we spoke last week about ship scrapping um, yep. while there's been so many thousands of ships there's only a handful that have been preserved and it's because it's just so expensive to keep them uh, yeah. operational at a, in a static role. So um, whether we see them or not, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but I would love to think that one of them could be preserved, but I, I tend to like the idea of that for all ships because I, I hate to see them go to the breakers, <laughs> but that's part of the ship's life cycle, I'm afraid. So I guess, um, I guess we'll wait and see. Yep, exactly. Um, I think that's about it for this week, Chris. But of course, you've always got your socials that uh, pop up generally uh, over the weekend. Anything coming up this weekend? Uh, this week, we're actually going to look at uh, what is happening with all of the food that was on the cruise ships when they went into the cruise pause, um, oh. which actually was what got me thinking about the food topic from the history perspective, because 
we think of cruises today as being sort of places where you can go and just indulge in all this food, but it wasn't, of course, always the case. But when the cruise pause took place, there was, you know, food on board all the ships for the next voyage. There was food being delivered to ports for future voyages. And so what did the cruise lines do with it all? And that's what this week's video is going to be about. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to put uh, the the link uh, to your Facebook, sorry, to your YouTube page on uh, in the show notes, which everybody can find at thebigcruisepodcast.com. Uh, Chris, always a pleasure. We'll speak to you next week. Great. Thank you. See you then. This podcast is not possible without the help of our good friends at cruisefinder.com.au. They have more than 30,000 different cruises live on their website, many with live availability and pricing. But most importantly, each and every call, chat and email is answered here in Australia by Australian clear accredited cruise specialists. So when you're looking for your next cruise, please consider the team at cruisefinder.com.au. And once again, we welcome our good friend Pete from Clear back to the show. Hey, Pete. Hey, Baz. Thanks for having me back. It's always good. Oh, pleasure. Now, this week we're talking about five ports. You can just grab a map and take a little walk. Tell us all about it. Oh, tough one. <laughs> <laughs> to narrow this down to five, this, this was really tough. I can think of ten off the top of my head just now. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm curious. Yeah. Number five. All right. Number five, um, Dublin. Oh, um, a lot of people don't realize Dublin's actually quite a small center, yep. small enough to stroll through. Um, and the traffic is terrible. So you're probably better off walking anyway. But you can actually take in a lot of the sites. So it's lively. It's, it's historic. Um, you know, you've got the Book of Curls at Trinity College. Uh, the library there is my favorite room of any place in the world. You've got O'Connell Street across the Liffey River, the Halfpenny Bridge. Um, Temple Bar District, which is like we have in Sydney, the Darling Harbour sort of area without the water. Um, but, you know, the, the atmosphere and the live music and pubs, you can shop at Grafton Street. So, look, you've got the cathedrals, museum galleries, all, all that sort of stuff that you have in any uh, all the attractions in any city. But with Dublin, you, you can really create your own day through the ebb and flow of your own interests. So if your interests are towards uh, archaeology, museums, uh, music, pubs, shopping, whatever it may be, it's all there, and it's it's very accessible. It's a really great place to walk around. Mate, you spoke about Dublin, and you didn't mention Guinness or Jameson's. Yes, <laughs> uh, Guinness, of course, the storehouse there. Old Jameson's sort of moved into the rural areas, but they still have that um, um, museum uh, in the old district, so uh, you can still go in there as well. And, yes, I have done both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number four? Number four, a lot of people don't uh, think of this in their top five, but Singapore. Ah, okay. Uh, Singapore is definitely one of the safest cities in the world. True. Um, a lot of cruises stay overnight. Of course, shopping on Orchard Road. Marina Bay is definitely just walking around, food markets, shopping. You've got Sentosa Island if you want, want entertainment. You've got gardens by the day. Um, and the reason why I liked it is is because you said, you know, uh, five ports that you, you could take a map and walk. So... If you go to Singapore Tourism Bureau uh, website, so stb.gov.sg, they've got maps. So Singapore is small. You can navigate it. It's the map easy. They've got a very easy public transport. Um, so it's just, you can't get lost. It's safe. And I probably wouldn't even have to, you know, I wouldn't actually recommend touring, to be honest. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those places where you need to self-explore. Yep. And almost everybody speaks English. If you did get lost, they'll they'll happily point you in the right direction. 
Oh, they're great. They're such beautiful people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And number three. Well, from a cruising perspective, Vancouver, because you're going to dock in Canada Place, which is right in the heartbeat of the city. And the reason I love Vancouver, uh, for me, Vancouver, Sydney, and um, San Francisco are very similar qualities where their harbour, their natural landscapes sort of morphed into a bit of old town and then city. They've got similar atmospheres, but Vancouver is very easy. If you turn left from the Canada Place, you can walk through Stanley Park, which is just beautiful. It's got Graville Island there, which is like a little man-made area where all the artisans and retailers have moved and converted warehouses uh, alongside houseboats, theatres, galleries, restaurants. If you go to the right of Canada Place, you've got Gastown, which is the oldest part of town, cobblestone streets, heritage buildings, um, a little unseedy sometimes, so you just got to be careful with yourself there. Um, but it, it's certainly Vancouver, and I, I could go on and on. But it the, the downtown actually is very very small, um, but talking about a mix of different um, rural and park lands and so forth, it's a beautiful walking destination. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Great spots. Love Vancouver. Uh, number two. Number two. Well, d- don't take a map. It's going to be pointless, but Venice. Okay. Um, I love Venice because, A, you are going to get lost. That's, I guarantee you, 100% on this show, money back guarantee, you will get lost. Um, that's okay. It's an island. You're not going to go far because you only got waters on each end and you've got the Grand Canal in the middle. So you've got a significant landmark. Um, but it's a place to get lost and discover in every little nook and cranny and little bridge. In fact, you can't drive, so you're going to walk. So that you know, there's a no-brainer anyway. But it is it, talk about walking cities. That that was well, it is literally built for walking. It, it is a, a beautiful, beautiful city to get lost in. And don't worry, you you can't get too far. Yeah, and also don't rely on your phone because the 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 apps, the maps on your phone don't know where you are. Either. I've tried. I've tried maps. To be honest, it's pointless. They're, they're so small. Yeah. yeah. Just just wander. You'll you'll find it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and number one. Number one. One of my favourite uh, regions of the world. Uh, you know, we used to as crew do seasons. Uh, was New England, and one of my favourite cities uh, in the US is Boston. And what I love about can't help but saying Boston, but Boston um, from a walking perspective, if you love a treasure, you know the treasure map. You've got the Freedom Trail. So let me explain. In Boston, you'll go in, um, the, I think it was called Black Falcon Cruise Terminal, I can't remember, but uh, it's about a 20-minute walk into uh, uh, Quincy Market. So if you wanted to walk, most cruise lines will have a shuttle uh, to that area. But right from the central area, there's something called the Freedom Trail. So it's four kilometres, and there's red bricks that you follow, like Dorothy, but just oh, in okay. a single file rather than the whole track. And... In that red bricks is 16 attractions, which are so significant to the history of the United States. So you can grab a map. So this was by number one, because you've got the map, you've got the walking. It's all close by. It's historical. It's uh, There's a lot of attractions aesthetically along the way, like the Boston Conway, uh, Common. But it is a really great day. So if you want walk, map, and explore, Boston's awesome. Uh, on the side, you've got Fenway Park, which happened to... Uh, experience uh, against uh, New York 
uh, what were they? Red Sox and New York, whatever they were. It was, oh, hey, yeah. it was a good night out. It was one of the semis. Uh, Beacon Hill, which is one of the beautiful suburbs. You got museums, uh, the, the neighborhoods, the Italian Irish neighborhoods. Harvard, of course, if you want to go there. Look, Boston's got, it's one of my favorite cities in the US, but from a walking one, the Freedom Trail. Hundred percent. You'll you'll have a great day out and learn so much about America. Oh, fabulous! I'm going to leave this for another time, but I'm curious to know Alaska or Canada, New England, because I've got another person that used to work on ships, and they they feel very strongly one way. But we'll we'll discuss that another time. <laughs> Pete, it's always a pleasure. All right, <laughs> we'll have you back next Cheers, week. Les. When you're packing for your next cruise, maybe consider a new pair of handmade sandals to go. Uh, Evolcus are handmade in Spain and sold with love here in Australia by sandalsandsunsets.com.au. You'll find all the details in the show notes below. Next up on the podcast, we're joined by Brogan, who uh, just last late last year was on a beautiful cruise on board Seabourn Ovation, cruising from Monte Carlo all the way through to Athens. Brogan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Baz. It's wonderful to be with you. Oh, my pleasure as always. I'm very excited to learn about this. I've uh, inspected um, Seabourn ships many, many times, but never had the opportunity to uh, to cruise on board. So really excited to hear your your thoughts on this particular journey. Before we talk about the cruise, though, let's uh, think about how uh, you got from Australia. You're in Melbourne. How did you uh, find your way through to Europe? And did you have any pre-accommodation books before you got there? Look, Baz, we, we did. Uh, it was uh, it was a just under six weeks that we spent uh, on, on the trip as, as, a, as a whole. And we had planned to spend just under a week uh, in Nice, uh, in the south of France. Very nice. uh, so we, we took a Qatar Airways flight from Melbourne. Uh, we flew by, via Doha uh, straight into, uh, into Nice, which I've got to admit is one of the my most favourite uh, airports I think I've ever been to so far. It's quite an incredible uh, arrival and descent uh, into uh, into Nice. <laughs> um, we spent uh, about five nights in an Airbnb, uh, sort of centrally located within Nice, so central to everything that we wanted to access. Um, and we were quite fortunate to have our own uh, SUV that we also hired. Uh, to get us around uh, the local area. Oh, beautiful! What was um, what was your thoughts on Nice? I definitely want to go back. Um, we were we were there at the time of year, sort of the end of season, so it was a lot quieter than I would assume it would be during the summer peak season. Yeah. Um, look, it was just magnificent, and walking along the waterfront there, and uh, you know seeing. Those magnificent yachts just anchored out uh, off uh, off the beach. There was quite quite incredible. Uh, the people were fantastic as well. The locals uh, were very very accommodating. Considering my French uh, is not hundred uh, <laughs> percent way way off in, in fact, but um, I did my very best, and they were very happy with my attempts. Um, but look, the cuisine, the hospitality, everything about Nice was just. Uh, just wonderful. We, we thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you manage to get out to the countryside, out to the, the general area of uh, Provence, etc.? Uh, look, unfortunately, uh, we didn't get a great chance to do that uh, a bit of time, but we, we did manage to uh, take a drive uh, to a little village called Ez, oh, yeah. still yep. on the coast, uh, 
uh, in between, uh, as you may know, Nice and, uh, and Monaco. And uh, we explored that for a while. And that's where we actually got um, proposed. My fiance proposed to me, which was quite a surprise. Oh, uh, wow. Congratulations. So that was, that was, thank you very much. So that was, that made it even more special. But um, we did, we did drive a little further afield uh, on, a, on another day. Down to uh, Khan, yep, uh, and uh, spent a bit of time down there. Uh, we had a friend with us that we met up with in Nice for a few days, so uh, they played tour guide, which was which was very handy. <laughs> Beautiful. Now Nice isn't that far from uh, Monte Carlo. Um, how did you find your way down to uh, the, the port and embarkation? Uh, look. We we pre sort of organised uh, our travel plans, of course, before we left. So we wanted to make sure we had a mode of transport that was easy to access uh, Monaco, um, and we ended up deciding on taking the uh, the train. Oh, yeah, uh, they've got the, the the train service running between uh, Nice uh, and Monte Carlo, and uh, I think that took half an hour thereabouts, and it uh, it went along the coast. So. Uh, we took in all the sites of the coast as we went um, went along, and that was just absolutely spectacular as well. And it was a very comfortable train trip. The trains were immaculately kept. Uh, the seats were very, very comfortable, so we had no issues with that. Brilliant. Now, re- refresh my memory. Is the train station in Monte Carlo reasonably close to the port? Look, it is. You can. Uh, it is walking distance. Um, obviously, with Monte Carlo, it's... Um, the elevation it sort of staggers it increases yeah. and uh, if you do have a lot of baggage uh, with you uh, my number one tip suggestion would be to get a cab okay. get a taxi uh, or, or some form of prepaid transportation down to uh, down to the dock site now um Seabourn is obviously a much smaller ship, so embarkation and all the, the procedures that you need to go through is, is a pretty streamlined process. But roughly how long did it take you to get from, say, curbside to actually walking up the gangway? Uh, look, we, we ended up getting to the port uh, a wee bit earlier than, uh, than planned. Um, we, we were able to drop our bags off uh, at uh, the terminal, which was fantastic, and they were whisked away and stored. Uh, we, took, uh, we took about a 45-minute wander uh, along the, the sort of quayside and around the, the general marina area, and we came back and uh, they advised us that uh, you know we had priority boarding. Um, they said uh, you can come through and check in now. So from when we checked in uh, at the desk, uh, we were on board the ship probably within about ten minutes. Oh, brilliant! Excellent. Quickest uh periods of uh of embarkation we've ever experienced so far which was really handy <laughs> now you have cruised with a seaborne before so the ships are all pretty similar but what's that feeling when you you walk up the gangway walk into the the ship oh it's <laughs> you you feel well in my opinion you feel like a movie star and <laughs> one of the one of the wonderful things that i always talk about with seaborne family and friends when they ask is um you're made to feel like family, um, old friends. So when we, for example, when we boarded the ship, we walked down to the quayside, and uh, there are a few crew members that we've known and met previously, and they remembered us. That's one oh, of the brilliant. wonderful things. They remember your name, um, and they had glasses of you know, mimosas and champagne ready for us, and they'd found out about our um, uh, engagement. Uh, they had bunches of flowers. And oh, nice! Flating us as we walked up the red carpet, 
<laughs> no, you do you do get made to feel special and that it's all about you. And it, that's quite a nice feeling. At, at times it can feel a little awkward because um, if you're not that sort of person that's you know um, very outgoing and quite reserved, uh, it can be a little bit of a, a bit of a shock to the system. But it, it's really really nice, and that's again one of the many reasons we we go back time and time again. Yeah, there's something very special about a small ship experience, and I think Seaborn just takes it to uh, to that next level again. Um, one of the first things that you always have to do on a ship, no matter what the cruise line is, is, of course, the mandatory uh, muster drill or lifeboat drill. Um, yes. Every cruise line does it slightly differently. Just explain the process um, on board Seaborn. Look, again, because it's a smaller ship uh, with a smaller volume of passengers and crew, um, there generally are only a couple of areas that are designated uh, for the mandatory muster, muster drills. Um, on this particular voyage on Ovation, uh, we were assigned... Uh, to the casino uh, area. Now, with uh, the casino area, it's a very, very small uh, area. Uh, it's located deck five aft uh, of Seaborn Ovation. Um, and we were there probably for about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, so we weren't there for very long. It was at four o'clock in the afternoon, um, but they were very efficient um, and everything was loud and clear. And uh, basically, we did have to take our life vests for the purpose of demonstration, uh, but they didn't require us to put them on. We were just meant to, you know, hold on to them, take them with us, and to to watch the instructions given from the crew. And um, obviously, once uh, muster is over, um, it's probably pretty close to to sail away. There's a a pretty special atmosphere when you're you're sailing out of Monte Carlo. Um, Was it uh, a particularly pleasant experience? Yeah, look at it was absolutely beautiful. Um, it was uh, the sun was slowly going down, so it was in between you know, a hint of darkness and that, that little bit of light that was still remaining. And with it, um, with that happening over the um, over the Mediterranean Sea and the backdrop of Monte Carlo, um, as we sailed out, was just oh, just spectacular. And we we met um, an English couple who were on board for the very first trip, and they were only on for a few days. On, part of the first sector and um, we got chatting to them and they they thought it was an absolute wonderful experience and she had only just set sail so it was um, you know it was uh, a very exciting time the music and entertainment's always outstanding uh, there's always a, a midship uh, sail away uh, weather dependent and the weather was perfect so everybody was singing along to you know, a number of different classics and uh, we were catching up with uh, old friends uh, that we'd um, previously sailed with as well. So it was a, a real coming together and a real fun uh, fun time for all. Yeah, absolutely. A great, great start to the holiday. Now, we'll talk about where you went on this voyage in a little while, but first of all, let's talk about uh, your suite um, on board the ship. Um, yes. What did you book? What were you allocated? How were the facilities? Um, and that important question was, I, I doubt there was a shower screen, but we always have to ask, was it a shower screen <laughs> or a, a glass uh, screen? Uh, look, Baz, uh, we were we booked a guaranteed um, suite on this trip. We we got an extremely good deal. Um, we were in what they call a veranda V1 suite. Uh, now that was located uh, forward, uh, so on uh, deck seven forward, uh, and we we're on the starboard side of the of the vessel. Um, a very spacious suite. Um, for memory, it was about two hundred and fifty square foot, um, and uh, the veranda itself being a little small, but still reasonable, was around the sort of 68 to 70 square foot. 
uh, with a with a small dining table, living area, queen size bed, uh, and all the amenities to go with it. Um, now, as for the shower, um, the uh, it's basically uh, a lot of marble uh, throughout the bathroom. Uh, we had twin sinks uh, as well. Um, and with the uh, shower itself, it is a glass door. Oh, brilliant. Um, and it's sort of nestled in the corner as you walk into the right-hand side, and it's sort of a curved curved uh, shower set up with a curved glass door. But, um, yeah, no, absolutely perfect. No, no issues whatsoever. <laughs> and do you make use of your butler? Uh, look, we're pretty self-sufficient. So there were times with some of the crew... We, particularly the, um, the the cabin stewards, we we often would just say, look, leave the bed today, have a morning off, or you know, it's one less to worry about. We're totally fine if we were going out to yeah. do a few things uh, on on shore. So there are times we did that, but often enough, um, the, uh, the the uh, steward would often, if we wanted to dine in in the suite, we would arrange for dinner to be delivered, and we'd sit on the on the balcony, which was a rarity. We didn't often. Um, and occasionally they'd come in and they'd do the turndown service, which is fairly standard on, on all cruise lines. And, um, and yeah, but look, like I said, we were pretty self-sufficient. We're not, we're not uh, messy, messy people, um, but they would come in and obviously change all the towels, do the bedding um, every, every number of days. But, um, yeah, no, they were really, really good. They were on top of everything. One of the most important aspects of any cruise is, of course, the, the cuisine and the dining, um, an abundance of choice wow. um, on Seabourn, of course. Talk me through, um, well, first of all, let's talk about your, your in-room dining, then move on to the, the main restaurants, and then talk about any of the speciality options that you may have uh, experienced as well. Yeah. yeah, of course. So with the uh, in-room or in-suite dining, it was basically a 24-hour, round-the-clock um, menu, which which was phenomenal. Um, obviously, we, we're not the types that would be ordering during the middle of the night, mm -hmm. but uh, we found that really handy, um, especially if we to come back to the suite late late night after after being down in uh, one of the bars, and we fancied a snack, you know, or just some, some fries, something fairly simple. So we would just call through to them, and they would deliver anything we wanted fairly, fairly promptly. Um, and we had no issues with that. But again, we much prefer being out and experiencing restaurants yeah, and yeah. Um, the different um, eateries that, that are available. Um, and how about some of the uh, the, the main restaurants and the, the specialty restaurants? Did you get to experience uh, pretty much all of them? Uh, always. I always make sure I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie um, and uh, we, we try to mix, mix it around a bit. So our day would... Uh, generally start with a visit to the colonnade, uh, which uh, basically is where most people go for breakfast, lunch, and often uh, they would have themed uh, dinner evenings okay. from different places around the world, which was fantastic with different cuisines. Um, the colonnade is uh, located on deck nine of Ovation, uh, again to the aft section of the of the vessel, uh, and basically it's, it's a casual uh, affair, so no need to dress up. Uh, for that, with self-service facilities as well as um, buffet uh, being served by uh, the crew in the kitchen, um, but a large variety of snacks, um, and they also have uh, an outdoor uh, sitting area as well, uh, which is an area we often would sit uh, outside for fresh air and, and enjoy our uh, generally our breakfast. And um, you were cruising. Uh 
prior to uh, COVID really being uh, an issue. But I know Seabourn is uh, particularly hot on uh, sanitization, washing of hands, etc. Um, how how thoroughly was it enforced um, on this particular cruise? Look, uh, they, they they're really on top of it. You know, it's 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 crucial um, high for hygiene purposes. But look, a lot of the public areas, so uh, the eateries, uh, the uh, the grand salon where they do shows, a number of different areas around the ship um, that are commonly used by guests. There are always those pump action uh, hand sanitizer stations, uh, and it was always expected. Uh, that everybody would, you know, uh, help themselves prior to going into one of the one of the public public areas. So we uh, we constantly would use it, um, especially before and after going into places. Uh, I think it's just the right thing to do, and it's a courtesy to uh, your fellow um, passengers and, and, and crew being respectful. Um, unfortunately, not everybody, and this goes across all cruise lines. I'm sure not everybody I notice would use it. Most people were very good at, uh, at utilising it. The crew weren't having to constantly remind people, uh, which, was, which was great to see. Yeah, it's interesting to see all these uh, hand sanitising stations popping up everywhere <laughs> on land now, and it's something that's been on cruise ships forever. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and, and I think it's going to be it's going to be the norm, uh, regardless, and it's going to be increased even more once we can all get back out cruising once again. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, the ship is um, a relatively small ship. Um, there's a large space ratio to guests. But um, how is it on a sea day when everybody's on board? Because it's rel- relatively easy to find that sunbed or to find a, a quiet spot in one of the lounges. Well, generally, it was not too bad. Unfortunately, um, you do get the odd, uh, if I can call them regulars, <laughs> who would uh, uh, hog uh, certain uh, areas of the deck space uh, with the sun lounges. That's something we've become fairly used to. Um, but generally, most people are pretty pretty good. Um, and being on a seaborne ship, you never feel like it's crowded, in, in our opinion. Uh, again, one of the other benefits of small ship cruising. Um, most people are, are respectful. Uh, you know, if they're, uh, if they're in your way or they're utilising an extra bed for whatever purpose, they'll often take their stuff off and say, would you like it? So most people are generally... Pretty, pretty hospitable and accommodating, um, but you'll always get those minority who feel uh, that it's their, their, their God-given right, I suppose, to reserve <laughs> um, certain sun lounges. But look, it doesn't it doesn't bother us. We're not we're not overly concerned about it. We just get on with our our wonderful trip and and and, and do something else. <laughs> and of course, uh, Seabourn is all inclusive, so um, that includes all alcohol as well as specialty coffees, etc. So there's uh, no additional. Yes kind of charges as you go except for the really high-end spirits of course um Correct. but is there lots of like live entertainment uh, on and around the ship to kind of complement the atmosphere on board look there, there is in comparison to i'm sure a lot of the other the big ship uh ships out there in the market um seaborne only has a, a small number or a small array of entertainment options Available, and that's because it is a small ship, or they are small ships as a whole. Um, but the great, the great thing about it is, um, for example, we we did trivia every afternoon, uh, which was located in the club uh, deck five, and we always had our regular groups, uh, and uh, we knew everybody. So that was something we would do uh, on on sea days, which is when they generally hosted trivia. Um, 
The shows were, you know, top-notch, 10 out of 10. Um, basically, they're running programs uh, that have been created by Sir Tim Rice. So an evening with Sir Tim Rice was often um, something we went to, uh, went to watch, and that was absolutely incredible. Never got sick of seeing it time and time again. Mm. Um, guest lecturers um, was something that we uh, attended uh, whenever we found something uh, that was of interest to us. Um, the crew show, the crew would often do a show occasionally, um, which was, again, a rarity and not on all cruises. Um, but uh, look, the entertainment was great, and for us it was more than more than ample. We don't need to be entertained 24-7. Uh, again, we're self-sufficient, but um, we found it to be top-notch and uh, never had an issue or a complaint whatsoever. Now, the, the highlights of this particular journey, I think, is going to be the itinerary. And I'm just looking at some of these ports that you went to. And, and I'm pretty well-traveled, but I've never been to about half of the places on, on this particular itinerary. So let's uh, take each port <laughs> one by one. Tell us um, okay. what you did there, whether it was a short excursion or whether you just wandered and did your own thing. Um, so we, our first call after Monte Carlo was Marseille. Uh, sadly, the weather was a little uh, on the wet side that particular day, and the ship anchored uh, out of Marseille, so we took the tender service across. But we used that that particular morning visit just to have a wander around, just to familiarise ourselves uh, selves with the uh, the local area. Um, we just basically went had a cup of coffee, uh, a snack, had a had a bit of a wander around. Um, but there wasn't a great deal to see because we didn't have much time there. Fairly early on from there. Um, Saint-Tropez was the next stop. Now, Saint-Tropez had been on our bucket list for a long time. Um, again, very, very quiet. A lot of the shops were closed, uh, being that part of yeah. the year at the end of the peak season, travel season. Um, again, we took the tender service across to Saint-Tropez. We went across sports and pastries, had a coffee, had, a, again, a wander around the waterfront uh, and took plenty of happy snaps along our along our walk um, and again it was just a leisurely walk there were no pre-organized tours uh, for Saint-Tropez on that particular uh, visit. Um, Bastia again <laughs> Bastia we actually spent I don't actually know where it is where is Bastia? Off just for a, for a <laughs> uh, good question. I've got to remind myself, <laughs> remind myself now. I haven't got the map uh, in front of me, but I think it's just a little further along from um, okay. not far from Saint-Tropez in that general general vicinity from, from memory. Um, so, again, we, we just took a, sh- a short wander off there uh, and then back on the ship. Um, we then went on to Rome, um, and Rome, oh, spectacular, absolutely beautiful. And the ship had to dock out of, uh, which is, well, they pulled dock outside of Rome on the coast down in uh, Tivita Vecchia, um, which uh, is about a 40, 45-minute side from Rome. And we had a pre-arranged tour booked for Rome, and that included a train journey uh, into Rome, which was fantastic. Um, and we did the, uh, the general touristy uh wander around Rome. Um, basically we went to the Colosseum. Um, of course we um, went to uh, to visit a few of the other highlights that my fiance had wanted to uh, wanted to go to including the Trevi <laughs> Fountain. Always have to go to visit the Trevi Fountain. 
um, of course, the, the Pantheon, um, and we had to try out an authentic. <laughs> that was my. I think that was my number one goal for that visit was to have a, an authentic with a bottle of wine, and that was just uh, absolutely tremendous. Uh, where else did we go from there? From Rome, we went on to Naples, and Naples, we did have a, uh, a short excursion booked with a group of uh, friends, and we went out oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, to see Pompeii. Um, Pompeii was incredible, um, and it, it was quite moving, actually, because, of course, you get to see a few of the um, the, the bodies yeah. that they managed to the ruins uh, that had been um, encased in, in um, the lava, and that that was awful. That was quite quite uh, emotional. But um, on a positive, it was uh, a very interesting site, and our guide was very very knowledgeable uh, on uh, on Pompeii, so very educational. If you ever get the chance to go back uh, to Pompeii um, during peak summer, mm-hmm. they do a Pompeii yeah. by night, um, and I've done both day oh. and night. And night is yeah. it, it just takes it to the next level. It's really eerie because you've got the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, and they pump yes. sounds and smells around the site, so you know that you're walking oh, past wow. a stable or past a bakery, and it's incredible. Oh wow! Oh, that's that's absolutely incredible, and that's the thing. There are a lot of these places we'd like to go back to and spend more time. So when we've got more time up our sleeve, we can definitely. Um, from Naples, we went uh, on to a place uh, called uh, Messina. Um, now, with Messina, uh, they were fairly, again, being the end of season, a lot of places were closed. So a lot of these ports, we, we just utilised our time to wander around the local local villages, the local waterfronts, and um, just take it all in, because the whole point was to have a relaxing holiday <laughs> on, uh, on this occasion. Um, Ship then went on to Valletta into into Malta. One of my favourite um, Yes, I think uh, that would have to be one of my top three, in the sense that we had a, a, a warm, a very warm welcome. The gunfire oh, yeah. was going going off with the cannon, um, and uh, we decided to do our own little war room for in memory of World War Two. So. That was that was very very interesting um, to experience that. Uh, I would have to say with the letter, still obviously got that very British feel about it, um, and you just feel so comfortable wandering around the letter. Yep. And uh, if anybody uh, is yet to experience the letter, they need to try down there when you dock on the ship. It's quite a spectacular sight. Um, looking up, it's just absolutely. And sail away was was tremendous uh, as well. Yeah, but again, you want to make sure that you've got your walking shoes for that because there's a lot of um, uh, steep inclines in some parts, as as there is uh, or has been in some of the other ports. But um, uh, very good if you're into into walking, want a bit of exercise. Um, this we got Syracuse. Um, Syracuse was um, was rather a fairly quick stop for us. And I, I haven't got much more information on that one. I'm sorry. That's about. okay. <laughs> Again, we spent quite a bit of time uh, on uh, on the ship on there. But if I can maybe just jump a little further forward and um, sure. go bypass Napfleon and Mykonos. Um, actually, I'll stick with Mykonos. My apologies. Um, Mykonos uh, was superb. 
but it was uh, absolutely beautiful. So we managed to dock Quayside there in Mykonos and we took a short uh, bus trip um, into the town centre uh, and we Um, but again, because it's the end of season, most places were closed. So I would highly recommend if anyone wants to experience a lot of the, the shopping side of things, probably best to go during the, uh, the summer season uh, when, when everything is fully operational. Yeah, because a lot of Greece will start um, to wind down from kind of mid-September onwards, I think. That, yeah, that's exactly right. And we, we knew that before, before we booked the trip. Um, but there was still there was still quite a lot uh, open uh, for the tourists, um, and uh, that was that was very, very handy. Um, we then continued uh, via roads, Patmos, um, and again with uh, Patmos. If I can just jump ahead there to Patmos, we again anchored uh, out from Patmos, and we uh, took the tender into it's a very small town, a very small village. And one of um, the singers on board, who's a friend of ours, we took her um, shoreside with us and we had a wander around uh, the town and we ended up taking her home. Thank you for you know, uh, giving us uh, wonderful entertainment on the, on the trip mm-hmm. as, a, as a whole. And um, enjoying a, a couple of vinos and, uh, and uh, a few, a bit of tapas, I think it was from, from memory. Um, and then from there, we continued on to Piraeus, into Athens, which is where we uh, concluded uh, our two back-to-back trips um, on, uh, on that particular uh, ship. And uh, it, was, it was a rather wet day, unfortunately, in Athens, and we were flying out to Istanbul the following day. So we just took, uh, took the remainder of the day after we just got up to, uh, to Taking a few of the local sites and again just relax before our um, early morning flight the next day. Fabulous! What's uh, some incredible uh, ports in there? As I said, some of them I've not seen. It's a lot of them I have, I have been to, um, but obviously just a, a small part of your big trip to Europe uh, of late last year. Now, did any of those yes, uh, particular ports stand out and make you want to go back for more? Uh, Monte Carlo, definitely. Um, definitely would like to go back to Mykonos when it's a little busier. Um, we're not always one for massive crowds, but I think if you want the true, the true experience with all the entertainment and the action that's going on, I think that's the best time to probably go during the during this European summer mm-hmm. period. Um, and I'll probably go back to Athens again just to experience a bit more, have a bit more time there, whenever um, we get a chance in the future. Now, you've told us about uh, your, your favourite ports there. Have you got anything uh, particular about uh, Seaborne Innovation that uh, is your, your go-to place on board or something that uh, you particularly like to do on board? Uh, look, we, we like to have a drink, uh, <laughs> and there's plenty of drinking to be had on a cruise, as everyone knows. But we, we often had a bit of a ritual, and that would generally uh, be that we would go to... Uh, the observation, uh, the observation bar on the ship. So the observation bar is located on deck eleven. Um, so it's pretty much at the very top, above the bridge of the ship, and you're looking out oh, uh, over over the front of the ship, and just absolutely spectacular. So we would often go there pre-dinner every night, and we would catch up with some friends, and we would sit and listen to uh, the uh, piano player 
and uh, the singer. And we probably spend probably about an hour there and then we would generally head off uh, and go and have dinner uh, in the main dining room, uh, which is called the restaurant, uh, which is located on deck three. And following dinner, we would potentially go back to the back to the observation bar for some more, more beverages. And then we would usually conclude the night after the show with um, uh, drinks in the club. And that's where there's a bit of a dance floor set up and the, and the Seaborn band. And you get up, have a bit of a dance, um, have a few, few drinks with some friends, and then slowly shuffle back to the suite uh, when we've had enough. <laughs> Fabulous. Now, um, some people believe that a cruise director can elevate your cruise to the next level. And I guess that can be said for any crew member on board. Is there anybody that really stood out on this particular cruise that you'd like to acknowledge? Yeah, I would, actually. Um, a friend of ours who was also the CD, the cruise director, Andre. Uh, Andre's been uh, working for Seaborn for many, many years. And uh, he, unfortunately, now is, uh, well, fortunately for Seaborn, but unfortunately for us as passengers, uh, he's no longer uh, working on the high seas. He's now working out of head office in Seattle, uh, heading, um, planning, I think, for the uh, entertainment on board all the ships across the across the line. Um, but Andre, for example, he goes out of his way to talk to everybody and he's very, very, a very patient listener. Now, Andre... Um, had hosted uh, us for a, for a private dinner one evening, which was, which was absolutely wonderful. And he was the one that went out of his way to organise that person, which was absolutely fantastic. And he'd come up to check to see how we're going. Um, he would, uh, we would often see him at pre or uh, sort of pre or post um, entertaining the, the show uh, most nights, and you'd see how we're all going if we needed anything. And he would do that with everybody. He would honestly do that with everybody. That, wasn't necessarily because he knew us, but he went out of his way to get to know as many, if not everybody, that was on that cruise. And um, he just made you feel, or makes you feel, um, you know, um, makes you special, I suppose, and that it's, uh, you know, that they, they'll do anything they can to make your cruise experience um, you know, absolutely perfect. So Andre would have to be my number one. Person to and I guess that's testament also to the the, the small ship experience. So a cruise director on a, a vessel with say five thousand guests is never going to be able to speak to every individual person on board. But when there's only a few hundred of you, and you're on there for a couple of weeks, it's it's uh, that gives the opportunity to to make those connections. Correct. That's right. Now, who do you think is the the ideal guest? I guess for, for a lot of people, people perceive uh, Seaborn to be the the ultra luxury category and maybe beyond their reach. But what's the reality on board? What are the ages and the, the mix of uh, demographics on board the ship? Um, well, it's funny because I've seen it slightly evolve in, in recent years to a degree. Now, it's Seaborn sort of has a club feel to it, if I can mention. So it's like a country club feel on board. Mm-hmm. Um, we've found uh, the passengers on, on the trips that we've done to be absolutely wonderful. Everybody says hello to you. The type of person that you would probably come across or the, the different types you would come across, there would be people who, if I can call them explorers, people who want to explore the world but in a luxurious, luxurious yeah. way. Uh, and definitely Seaborn's the way the way to do it. And being small ship cruising, the ships can get into more remote areas in comparison to the bigger vessels. But 
the age demographic um, does depend on part of the world that the, the itinerary um, uh, is, is at. Um, so, for example, on this particular voyage, we, my fiance and I, we're, we're in our 30s. Um, we were probably one of the youngest uh, on board, um, if I can be honest. Um, but the general age is probably sort of 50, 50 to 70, roughly. Right. Um, approximately. So it is the slightly more mature demographic, and I think, and that's always been the case with Seaborn. Um, but on the, the first week, we did have a couple of younger couples, probably again in their late thirties, maybe forties, who were either travel agents or just um, experiencing uh, their first time Seaborn voyage. Um, but generally, it's a more mature age group on there. But we get along with everybody and anybody. Uh, you know, we can to anyone and um, the, the the people like I said the people on board uh, are there to not just relax but they want to explore the world in style and that's uh, that's what we do uh, get the chance to do on sea fabulous now if uh, the uh, execs back in Seattle uh, and Sydney of course were happening to listen to this podcast have you got a particular message uh, to them good bad or indifferent uh, look I it's a very good question, um, and I have thought about this, funnily enough, previously. Um, I, I'd like to—I'd like them to be aware that Seaborn um, has carved a name for itself, you know, for, for the last 30, 32 years. It's been going since nineteen eighty-eight, and it's got such a loyal following um, uh, as well to it, uh, us included. I'd like Seaborn to to know from from us that to keep going with what they're doing got such a wonderful product uh it's it's working and you know nothing's ever perfect in life uh we fully understand that and i know if something does go wrong crew on board are always there to rectify it promptly and efficiently and uh that's what we find fantastic so i suppose seaborn keep doing what you're doing don't make your ships any bigger than what they are now <laughs> these are big enough uh we love them as they are and i know there's a new president um, he's just taken over Seaborn in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, so if he ever gets a chance to listen to this, it's to say, keep doing a fantastic job. Don't change anything that's uh, that's going on uh, and continue to look after uh, your, loyal, your loyal patrons, your loyal clients who sell time and time. Brilliant. That's a great message. And uh, you never know who listens. Uh, there are people that may forward it to, to the, the head. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, you, you've cruised a lot in, in, in your uh, time. Um, obviously, COVID is hampering our ability to go back out to sea. But hmm. when the time is right, will you will you take another cruise? And if so, where would it be to? Yeah, look, we uh, that's a definite yes. Uh, that's a no-brainer for us. Um, we uh, we had uh, we had a wonderful uh, four-week cruise booked on Seaborne uh, Quest uh, in November, which we've unfortunately had to cancel mm-hmm. due to uh, the COVID, uh, and that was doing all of South America, Panama Canal from Miami to Santiago. Oh wow! Um, so. That is definitely what we would like to revisit as soon as we can. The Panama Canal has been something I've wanted to do oh, ever since I fell in love with ships from being a, being a small child. Yeah. Um, we also had an April crossing a transatlantic from Miami to Rotterdam booked in April, which we did cancel because it's we, we don't know when this is going to start up again. Yeah, yeah. And, and we just made that executive decision to cancel all further booking. So 
The future trips that we're looking at are the South America, um, the transatlantic once again, um, and we're also eyeing off um, for 2022, the World Cruise, which was cancelled for next year. Yep. Uh, we'd like to do uh, a great itinerary. So the last leg of the World Cruise from Singapore to, to Athens um, on Seaboard Sojourn, which was our very first seaboard ship that we, that we sailed on. So we would like to, uh, they're, they're the itineraries, all the parts of the world we're looking at uh, redoing. So as soon as the uh, the government allows us to start travelling again, we will be red hot on booking <laughs> uh, our, our, our trips uh, once again. So we're, we're looking forward to when that yeah, me too. Can't wait for that green light. Uh, Brogan, it's been oh, an yeah. absolute pleasure talking with you today. I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. Thank I'm you. sure our listeners will too. Likewise. And when uh, when we do get to cruise again, you're more than welcome to come back and uh, tell us all about uh, the next adventure. I would be most uh, happy to do so. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you today and giving you a bit of an insight into into Seaborn and why, why we enjoyed so much. Fabulous. Thanks again, mate. We'll speak to you soon. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time, bon voyage. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.